All right, a quick check-in here at the beginning. How many of you have seen The Princess Bride? All right, very good. How many of you have seen it relatively recently? Okay. Uh, all right. Yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, so I appreciated uh, Danny sharing some here at the uh, beginning of a kind of a gender analysis of The Princess Bride. And there's certainly other uh, similar analysis from uh, per- uh, perspectives of oppression we could do. We could ask questions like, where are the people of color in The Princess Bride? So I appreciated uh, Danny lifting some of that up. This past year was the film's 30th anniversary. And although I've seen this movie uh, quite a few times over the years, uh, prior to rewatching it last week, I probably hadn't seen it in more than a decade. In revisiting the film, I was reminded of how great the cast is. It's one of those where you look back and then realize that back then these were nobodies who have become somebodies over the past uh, three decades. To give you just a few examples, uh, one of the stars is Fred Savage. He's uh, age 11. It's actually a year before the first episode of The Wonder Years. He's the sick grandson to whom the story The Princess Bride is being told. It also stars Robin Wright as Princess Buttercup seven years before she plays Jenna in Forrest Gump and many more years before she had her current role of um, Claire Underwood in House of Cards. All the same people, right? It's amazing to see how things change over the years. Uh, So many other amazing actors are in the movie from Andre the Giant to Billy Crystal and so many more. And part of the film's enduring uh, popularity, though, isn't just the wonderful cast, but it's the almost absurdly quotable dialogue. After uh, watching The Princess Bride, one of the most difficult parts, for example, and you may find different ways in which this may be true for you, but being a minister, it's restraining yourself from starting a wedding ceremony with marriage. (laughs) Marriage is what brings us together today, and love, true love. Uh, if you, some of you noticed in the cast, it's actually the impressive clergyman is the, is the name of that character. Um, along these lines, Mandy Patinkin reports that to this day, he is almost daily approached by some stranger who asks him to say, uh, to perform for them, and you can say it with me, hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die, right? Every day for 30 years. <laughs> so, uh, he only got paid that one time for the film. <laughs> Have any of you read the book? Oh, we had just a few. Okay, a few of you. Um, as Danny mentioned, the screenplay is based on an earlier novel published in 1973 by William Goldman. He also wrote the screenplays for Butch, da- Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, as well as for All the President's Men. Fascinatingly, the seed of the idea for The Princess Bide was um, planted on a road trip that Goldman took with his two daughters that Danny mentioned when they were younger, and he, they knew he was a writer, and so it came up at some point. He's like, sure, I'll write a story for the two of you. What do you want it to be about? And one of them said princesses, the other said bride, and so a postmodern classic title was born, The Princess Bride. So what significance might there be for us in this film other than an arguably great piece of pop culture? Well, I was inspired to revisit the film after reading Ethan Nickturn's latest book, The Dharma of the Princess Bride. I've been following Nick Turn's work for quite a few years. He's the founder of the Interdependence Project. It's a meditation group in New York City dedicated to secular Buddhist practice, transformational activism, and the arts. 
But I was fascinated to learn recently that Christopher Guest, he plays the six-fingered man in The Princess Bride and has done quite a few other films that you may be aware of, uh, spoofs, uh, was actually, Christopher Guest was Ethan's father's best friend growing up. So he had grown up knowing uh, Christopher Guest. And as is the case with many relatively famous people, from the outside, Ethan Nick Turns has a very impressive resume and could sort of seem like having a charmed life. Uh, his wedding, for instance, had a full article write-up in the New York Times, was officiated at by Sharon Salzberg, another well-known um, Buddhist teacher, famous for teaching loving-kindness meditation, not a bad person to have officiate your wedding. And so at a young age, he became a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist uh, community. His 2015 book, The Road Home, a contemporary exploration of the Buddhist path, was selected as one of Library Journal's best books of 2016, um, I mean of 2015, one of Tech Insider's nine books that will define 2015. He's lectured widely, he's been on CNN, NPR, New York Times, all the usual suspects. And part of how he came to this sort of relative, you know, celebrity status, relatively speaking, right, we're talking about Buddhists here, uh, within the Buddhist world is that his father is David Nickturn, uh, and he was one, David was one of the early students of Chogen Trumpa Rinpoche when he was bringing Tibetan Buddhism to the West for the first time. But as is the case with all of us, below the surface, it turns out that even the most seemingly charmed life, if you look below the surface, is a lot messier from the inside. Here's an example. In 1987, when The Princess Bride was released in theaters, Nick Turn was nine years old and in the fourth grade. So on one hand, it's pretty amazing when you're nine years old and in the fourth grade that your father's best friend has a major role in a funny, great new film. And it's pretty cool generally that your dad's a successful musician. David Nick Turn's you know, well-known for doing uh, television soundtracks, things for things like The Wire, um, other similar shows, and is also a well-known Buddhist teacher. Here's what else, though, happened that year in young Ethan's life. His parents went through a difficult divorce. Uh, two of his grandparents died. That's the same year also that Chogun Trumpa died, uh, the charismatic founder of the Shambhala Buddhist lineage. And if that wasn't enough, uh, Nick Turn also had two surgeries that year to help with a mild case of cerebral palsy. He writes, that surgery left me outcast, and objectively speaking, I was the second least popular kid in my class. From, his, from this more informed perspective, it seems clear that part of what makes Nick Turn a great Buddhist teacher is not merely being born into it, but experiencing that chaotic roller coaster that is all of our lives at various points. And through the ups and downs of life since that fateful year of 1987, one constant companion in Nick Turn's life has been the Princess Bride. He's watched it one or more times over the past three decades. So I was interested in his reflections on the film from a Buddhist perspective. And as is true of many great movies, at the heart of The Princess Bride is relationships. The friendships of Inigo Mentoya, the giant um, Fezzik and Wesley, the farm boy turned man in black, the romance of Buttercup and Wesley, the frame story of the grandfather telling this tale to his grandson. It should have been two girls, right? I mean, if he wrote it for his daughters, right? Missed opportunity there. Within the world of the film, all these relationships are complicated, and rightly so. As Chogun Trumpa Rinpoche used to say, it is possible that you could become enlightened everywhere except around your family. Because that's the most difficult place to be awakened. 
You know, the difficult place to not have our shadow sides come out. Many of you have heard me say before that, you know, our family can push our buttons the best because our family sewed on our buttons, right? So relatedly, the Zen tradition teaches that if you want to know, is this teacher truly enlightened, don't ask them, ask their spouse, right? Ask their kids. Accordingly, many of you have heard me say that enlightenment is not the best translation of the Pali word bodhi. A better translation of what the Buddha meant was the word awakening. A spiritual experience that is said to be quite similar to our everyday experience of waking up from a dream, except in Buddhist awakening, you're waking up from, you're awakening further from your already woken up state into an existential realization that reality is far more impermanent and far more interdependent than is typically understood, which in turn changes our relationship to ourself, to others, and to the world, to our suffering as well. Nick Turn proposes pushing this one step further. He often translates the word Buddhist, which also has that same Pali root of Bodhi, to translate Buddhist as awakest. Basically, instead of the Buddhist tradition, it's the awakest tradition to make that root meaning of awakening more transparent to English speakers. From this perspective, Nick Turn invites us to consider the ways in which the Princess Bride could be viewed as an awakest fairy tale. In the same way that the film deconstructs those typical fairy tale tropes, uh, Danny spoke about some of them, about how it's Prince Charming isn't so charming, right? So there's ways in which it's deconstructing these typical fairy tale tropes and then puts them back together in ways that are both playful and profound with a healthy dose of irony and meta-commentary added in for good measure. So too, in that same way, meditation Um, deconstructs our reality, exposing the shifting nature of this thing we call ourself and helping us perceive what we use called the interdependent web of all existence. Nick Turn is also aware, of course, that The Princess Bride, it's not only a postmodern romantic fairy tale, it's also clearly a quest for revenge, the latter of which doesn't seem particularly awakest or Buddhist. Uh, from an awakest perspective, evil is not a person, a place, or a thing out there with its own independent nature that we can get rid of through revenge. Rather, from a Buddhist perspective, evil is nothing more than a habitual action arising from confusion. And Nick Turn writes that as he's, you know, watched the news and watched Princess Bride for decades, he's noticed things, for example, that more than a few what he calls reality-challenged, compassion-deficient men, have risen to political power in the decades since this movie has come into the world, not that it's anything new. And he says, for instance, when a war against Gilder is plotted upon a totally made-up premise, it's pretty funny. But when a war against Iraq is um, plotted upon a totally made-up premise, it's not funny at all. So what do we do? Do we laugh? Do we cry? Do we do both at the same time or in alternation? Well, there are many lessons about what we might do from this film, The Princess Bride, that Nick Turn explores in more than 200 pages in his book, but I'll limit myself for now to just one that might be helpful for us to explore. And that is the hubris of the character known as Vizzini, his excessive pride, his self-confidence. It's in which the man in black exploits to defeat him. 
The Zany is this arrogant ringleader of a gang who kidnaps Princess Buttercup, and although he presents himself as this self-assured genius who knows everything, this fake confidence is clearly a mask to uh, a desperate attempt to try to cover up his own insecurity about all the things he doesn't know. You know, Socrates, a truly wise person, said, what I know is that I don't know everything, and that's actually the source of my wisdom. Instead, for Vizzini, at multiple points, it is his certainty about thinking that he knows everything that proves to be dangerously incorrect. Instead of accepting new evidence that is right in front of his eyes, you know, Inigo Montoya says to him, I think a ship is following us. And what does he say? Inconceivable, right? That, and he's like, no, really, the ship, it's following us. Uh, you know, that when there's new evidence, uh, the invitation is to be curious about the ways that new information can open up previously unforeseen possibilities or change our plans. Instead, again, his default response is to say, inconceivable. Basically, it's the late 80s equivalent of calling everything you disagree with fake news, right? Eventually, Inigo Montoya says the following about Vizzini's repeated use of this word, inconceivable. He says, you keep using that word. I I do not think it means what you think it means. The invitation is for us to get a little more curious, to ask a few more questions, to consider a few more possibilities outside of the frames that all of us are inevitably stuck inside of, caught within, before the things we are so sure, think we are so sure about, end up catching up with us and causing harm to ourselves, to others, to the world. Fascinatingly, a little more than two years ago, 20 years after the film was released, there was a real-life parallel to this famous cinematic exchange. Back in, the late, back in, back in late 2015, the real-life actor, Mandy Patinkin, who played the character in Nigo Montoya, began to receive the same email forward from many different friends. They all wanted to be sure he had seen it. The email contained a series of pictures from The Princess Bride. Some of you may have seen this with the face of Senator Ted Cruz superimposed on the faces of various characters from the film, including over the face of Patinkin's character, Inigo Montoya. The backstories that Senator Cruz had publicly proclaimed The Princess Bride to be his favorite film, and a new internet meme was born. But it didn't stop there. Soon, Patinkin's inbox became cluttered with videos of Mr. Cruz acting out scenes from the film, different scenes at many different uh, campaign stops. It was sort of his shtick that he was developing, including many of Patinkin's scenes. Patinkin, as you can perhaps guess, does not agree with um, Senator Cruz's politics, but the more he thought about it, the more he became convinced that this actually wasn't a case of someone you disagree with politically liking the same piece of pop culture as you, which may be more distasteful than dangerous. Senator Cruz was accurately quoting the lines from his film, but echoing his character's famous line, Patinkin kept thinking, you know, you keep quoting this film, but I do not think it means what you think it means. And eventually, Patinkin felt so strongly about it that he published an essay in Time Magazine. You can Google this and read it for yourself if you want to see the full piece. It's, it's quite well done. And after watching many clips of Senator Cruz quoting The Princess Bride, it was clear that, that Mr. Cruz had memorized extensive sections of the film. It's only 98 minutes, so you know you can, you can really, um, really get a, lot, a large swath of it memorized. But Patinkin invited Cruz to consider that in all of these different 
uh, scenes that he had watched of uh, Senator Cruz quoting The Princess Bride, there was one particular line that he said seemed um, glaringly to be an omission. Now, Patinkin may be a bit biased in claiming that this particular line is the most important line. It is, after all, one his character said. You may have a different uh, favorite line, but it is Patinkin's favorite line. And he's not wrong that it is a profound piece of dialogue. His character at this point um, had dedicated his entire life since being a small child to training as a sword fighter and a single-minded determination to kill the person who had killed his father, which, and so spoiler alert, which I don't feel bad about after 30 years to one small piece of the film, he does eventually kill the six-fingered man, but he is then shocked to find himself confessing something unexpected. He says, you know, it's very strange. I've been in this revenge business so long that now that it's over, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. Have you ever heard that saying that being angry at someone after a certain point, it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies? Sort of like that. Patinkin says, too often we think that when we have a problem with our lives or with our country, that the only or best way to fix it is an eye for an eye. But violence only perpetuates more violence, and it becomes this vicious cycle. And in what you're doing, as Dr. King said, in that act of violence, you're, you're in so doing, setting the seeds, sowing the seeds of future acts of violence. Uh, Patinkin continues that politicians who use phrases like carpet bombing the people of ISIS, you know, ignoring the collateral damage there, the innocent civilians who will die, politicians who say after the incidents in Paris that we need a war president, they are using fear-mongering and hate speech. And it only brings more pain and suffering in its wake. We must learn from this day forward, what are we going to do with the rest of our lives? Let it be not revenge, but acts of humanity. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Patinkin and how he came to arrive at this more compassionate worldview. It turns out that Patinkin has cultivated a practice of meditating for 20 minutes every day. That's right. Inigo Mantoya now meditates every day. No pressure, though. But I don't want to end there without naming one more potential pitfall in a level of irony appropriate for a postmodern fairy tale like The Princess Bride. It is also the case, I would invite you to consider, that even that compassionate worldview that Patinkin admirably espouses can itself, if we're not careful, harden into a new limiting framework that can inhibit our ability to respond to reality in all its fullness, Uh, all its messiness and complexity. If we aren't careful, we can still stumble into that same trap that caught Vizzini. We can find ourselves saying in advance, trying to come from a place of compassion about those with whom we disagree. We can find ourselves saying, inconceivable that anyone could think that, right? In contrast, the invitation is to stay curious about what we might unexpectedly learn from anyone. Because each person's experience of this world is unique in ways both large and small. One other story that Mandy Patinkin shares in that that Time magazine story, he's not trying to claim that he's got it all figured out and saying that, you know, and uh, asking us to turn aside from revenge and toward compassion and humanity, but they, they do have a saying in his family they've developed that they say to themselves and say to one another, and it's that hurt people 
hurt people. And they say that to themselves when they find themselves behaving badly, less than their best selves, and they say it sometimes to one another to remind, you know, of, like, who hurt you today? <laughs> you know, that you're being such a jerk to your family, to your loved ones, right? Because we tend to be our best selves when we're rested, when people have been nice to us, when we've been nice to ourselves, when things are going well, and we tend to be our worst selves when things are going badly, when people have been treating us badly. That we, uh, So I offer that to you, that hurt people hurt people, uh, to, as a, something you can kind of remind yourself of to call us back to our best selves. And one final thing along those lines, uh, Ethan Nickturn, uh, has, uh, who wrote The Dharma of the Princess Bride, has a great saying, one of my, maybe my favorite 21st century definition of meditation. He defines meditation as accepting your own friend request, as opposed to like blocking, you know, like you how you block people that are like internet trolls and things like that. Well, we can do that to ourselves too. And so he says, you know, meditation, learning to be silent with yourself, learning to just sit with whatever's coming up, learning to use a Princess Bride metaphor. If you remember through the, they're going through the fire swamp and they're confront, they have to confront the R-O-U-S's, the rodents of unusual size. Well, we too have rodents of unusual size. Sometimes they come from outside, sometimes they come from within, right? So how do we meet them with compassion? passion and accept our own um, friend request. Uh, so the invitation is as you uh, encounter other people in the world, as you uh, to be, a uh, final thing else that comes to mind, that the spiritual teacher Henry Nowen talks about the difference between being a wounded healer and a wounded wounder, right? So that there's a big difference between being a wounded healer and a wounded wounder. So in that sense, I invite you as you go into this day into the days to come to continue your journey to the extent you can, to continue it with love, to care for one another and to care for this one earth, to do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out of this place. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.